we're sort of at point 10 about reconciliation. This is uh, the second, second, second word. So you remember where we were last week. Um, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, and I tried to prompt you on to that with something more than a bit of self-fear. That was, uh, in fact, uh, not about just about the thief, but it was about the goodness of the kingdom itself and how the thief is able to see beyond the moment, which, of course, is what it is to believe in promises. To believe in the promise of the church is to be able to see beyond the moment. And if you read, you know, one way to read scripture is to read it as promises and fulfillment. It's another way to say death and resurrection. That whatever may appear to be the case, there is always a stronger factor on the horizon. And Christ is the stronger factor. And so, uh, you know, with whatever we sort of run through in the church, uh, there's Jesus behind it saying, I'll build my church great comfort for us in the church uh, when the thing seems to be flying apart. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Uh, that's, that's great comfort for anybody in the church. Uh, there's a, you, you remember, I think, I think uh, you might remember in the, in the troubles of the Catholic Church with uh, you know, the, the, the horrible abuse of children over the past few years, there was a reporter who was pressing uh, a cardinal incessantly about this. I, I don't say that in, in defense of, 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 of anything that happened horribly wrong. Uh, I say it to make this point. Is Preston the Cardinal, uh, won't this be the end of the church as we know it? And the Cardinal, very, uh, with, with a great amount of savvy, said, uh, my friend, people have been doing this in the church for 2,000 years, and uh, the Lord has brought, brought us through this far, and, you know, and he'll, he'll carry on with us beyond this day. Now, that doesn't excuse, of course, the horrible things that went on. It just reminds you that in the midst of horrible things, it's the Lord who builds his church. So the most horrible of horrible things is Christ on the cross. And, uh, you know, on the other side of that is the thief um, living with the confidence, as Hauerwas says, that the only remembering that matters is to be remembered by Jesus. And then how that puts us into the church together. For you to be a member of the church is to be a member of the body of Christ. This is good stuff. And so then, point 10. This is on the one, uh, for, on the second word, point 10. You know, remember me. You know, be with me. Reconciliation, reconciliation in some sense means paradise. In forgiveness. You know, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That first word. You know, we begin to catch a glimpse of paradise. You can hardly, you can hardly see that. You, you, you people who saw the Passion of the Christ, which I would recommend that you see uh, at some point. You who saw that, you know, you saw the, you sort of, sort of saw the horrible nature of what was going on there. And yet, uh, there was that point. I don't know if you, you sort of caught this, where that the, the Father's tear drops from heaven and sort of washes the whole thing clean. You remember that? And this is sort of at the, at the cross point. So you know, the father cry weeps over his son, and in his weeping he cleanses the world and, and restores it. And there's the great reversal then where, where, the, where that Satan figure, who, you know, if there was a, a best supporting actress, that, the, that, 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 that woman who played the Satan figure wasn't even nominated. Is that, that is the most spooky thing to watch, that, that sort of androgynous, compelling evil, you know, 
This is fascinating stuff. That, 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 that figure then is put into great anguish at the reconciliation of the Father, not just with the Son, but with you. You know, the Father weeps you into the kingdom. It's remarkable stuff. And so we do then, you know, and I've tried to, I've tried to you, so often you, you and I seem to be defenseless at the point of why would anybody ever come to church. But the honest truth is, um, the honest truth is that deep down inside, uh, you know, we know it's there. I, I try not to talk about my kids too much, and yet, you know, my kids is, you know, where a large chunk of my life is. I've been fascinated. I've been utterly fascinated by the number of high school kids who have approached my daughter about coming to church when they, found out, when, when they find out that her dad is a pastor. I would expect just the opposite. I would expect them to flee me. And what I find is, that is it's very interesting, the number of kids who have sort of said, you know, could I perhaps be coming along? Now that just shows a deep angst in, in kids. And it is the same angst that you have, that you'll be alone and that you'll be unloved, that you'll be left behind. It, that you suffer, that you yearn for justice, that you hope for a better place, that people will do almost anything to relieve their pain. You know, it's, it's down in us. You know, we want that desperately. You know, and it's all around us, and it doesn't, it doesn't really matter about age. You know, the kids can sort of say, you know, well, there might, might be a place for me someday. That's you know, the bravery that that takes. Uh, we need to be sensitive to that, that people are, in fact, sighing for Eden, that they hunger to be remembered, that people have a sense that they are not whole. In some sense, people, they just, they just realize that they're just not whole, that, that, that the something is broken to bits. Um, if, we could, if we could be a bit better at drawing people into that, what is true and good and beautiful, and frankly, you know, that starts with how we conduct our own lives. Most people are going to join this church. The latest thing I saw was 71%. They run the study every couple of years. They ask people, new people, why'd you go to church? And, you know, it comes out always 60, 70, 80% of the people say, mm -hmm. I, I joined the church because I knew somebody who had something I wanted. You know, why put your kids in the school? You know, we can, we can market all we want, uh, and that's a good thing, but the honest truth is, People are going to come to school for the same reason they come to the church, because they see something in your kids and in our teachers that they don't see in kids elsewhere, and they want that thing for their kids. It's really not particularly complicated. It is difficult. It's not complicated. So these things, you know, if we can understand that, 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 that we are dissatisfied in some sense with the world, and this great quote from Newhouse, the only death to fear is the death of settling for something less. That's it. The Lord intends to draw you to a far place, to an other world. And so much, so, so much in the world is about coming up short. So much in the world is about, about giving up. So much in the world... Uh, is about this is too difficult. It's, it's in the gospel for today. It's another way to read the gospel for today. Jesus had just told them that he was going to die, and they can't possibly bear to hear that. It's too difficult. So they need to find, they need to tell another story that's not his, it's theirs. This is just one story. See? And it is the story then of the church. The way of paradise is not the way of return. 
and I tried to convince you of this a couple of weeks ago, that, you know, so often people ask, why the cross? And the answer is, because you, you, you matter, and your life matters. You know, the Lord could, the Lord can do what he wants, and he could have returned all of us to paradise without without the cross. But should he do that? You see, that's a different question. Is that best? How is it that you would really understand the meaning of life? How is it that your life can actually have meaning if there is no difference between good and evil? If with a wink and a nod, the horrible person you've been and the horrible things you've done just uh, sort of disappear. This is, this is that deep down, that means there's no difference between what's good and what, e what is evil. It means there is no morality in the universe. You know, at the deepest point, if there is right and there is wrong, somehow the breach you know, needs to be overcome. And the way of overcoming it is the cross. And the cross is something that you can understand. At your deepest point, life and death is what you understand. I once heard this guy in New York City say, you know, we're all just sitting around waiting to get cancer. We're all just sitting around waiting to die. There's one way to look at life. It's a, hor <clears throat> Excuse me. it's a horrible way to look at life if you think that that's the end. And you see, that's part of the problem with the whole euthanasia and the hemlock society. And, and pulling feeding tombs and all that kind of stuff. Sort of, and the, the whole sense of, 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 of recreating our death in terms of evolution. You sort of slimed up out of the mud and you'll slime back down and it's the most natural person. Everything in the church, everything in Christ, everything in the cross rebels against that. You do actually matter and you didn't slime up. And there is right and wrong and Christ will reestablish that and he will reestablish it in a way that is utterly free and given to you as a gift. And the only proper response to that is thank you very much. And so Jesus, you didn't choose me, I chose you. It's great comfort, see? 11, to be with Jesus, to be claimed by Jesus to be his friend, is paradise. And to be near to Jesus is to paradise. For Jesus is the kingdom of God, the Autobasileia, the kingdom of the crucified. We need to know no more than this. And I've, I've sort of been prompting me the last few weeks to try to just engage the mystery of that. Just to sit and think about it and to be content, perhaps by not having the final answer, to recognize it's beyond you. To be in paradise is to be with Jesus. To be pulled into God's life by the love made visible on the cross. God does the pulling. Our salvation is no more or no less being made part of God's body, God's enfleshed memory, the incarnation. How does he remember you? How is he faithful to you? How does he care for you? He comes in the flesh. So that the world may know that we are redeemed from our fevered and desperate desire to ensure that we won't be forgotten. Today you'll be in paradise with me. But partly what you have to remember is that until the last day you're going to be horribly uncomfortable with that because that is absolutely anti-world. And the greatest mistake of the church in my generation 
is to measure the church by the way of the world. This is the greatest mistake of the church. It is at the root of all the ills the church in our generation suffers. We measure the church by the way of the world. If the church looks like the world, then it's successful. If it doesn't look like the world, it's not. That is absolutely, positively anti-Christ. Christ is otherworldly, and the church is other world on earth. No other explanation for it. And, and the acid test is if you walk into a church and everything that's said can be said without reference to the cross. If you can say it without reference to cross, to, if you can get it somewhere else, it's not church. It's something else. It's not to say that everything else that's not cross is bad. It's just something else. If the church is about self-improvement, if your pastor treats you like a spa guest, if precisely the same principles work in your business that work in the church, something is terribly, terribly wrong. Because the church is about weakness and service and incarnation and what's beyond us and forgiveness in spite of ourselves. If you don't hear that in the church, you should really find another church. But that, of course, then doesn't let you just sort of free to do nothing. And I gave you this from last week, and I tried to prompt you toward reading it, not in terms of sort of universalism, but in terms of service. And I just think that this is it. You know, what's the point of being Christian? You know, people who ask that should listen to themselves. What's the point of being first rather than last and serving the Lord whom you love? I mean, it's sort of like asking, what's the point of loving your wife? What's the point of loving your kids? You know, what's the point of being busy in the church? What's the point of being found rather than lost? What's the point of knowing truth rather than living in ignorance? What's the point of being full blast rather than halfway? What's the point? What's the point of being welcome home by a waiting father rather than languishing by the pigsty? What's the point? The question answers itself. If you can't see that the question answers itself, you're deaf, dumb, and blind. Honestly, you know, all those high school kids who are talking to my daughter, they are yearning for what is good and true and beautiful and solid. That is what people like. That is what people need, whether they know it or not. And if the church provides other, then the church is unfaithful to Christ on the cross. So I just sort of push you in that direction. Um, it's not the normal thing that you hear about the church these days. But it is, in fact, Christ Church. Now, I've sort of blathered on for two and a half weeks without even pause. So I will, um, I will pause now if you have a question or anything you want to say. Otherwise, I'm going to press on. But don't feel compelled. I can, you know, I'll be here again, I hope. So uh, anything, just anything about anything? All right, have a look at uh, this third word. This is each one more comforting than the last. Does everybody have this third word? Woman, behold your son. Got this? Uh, you know, probably it's not bad if you have a Bible to open to John 19. I'm going to read as you open if you want um, because, of course, there's a bit more than this. You remember how it is. Uh, you remember how it is, how it is at the foot of that cross. 
Um, fascinating thing that never sort of occurred to me, although I'd always just sort of known this. This is always what's helpful when you read other people. You know, we normally see in artwork, we see these very tall crosses, you know, 13, 14 feet high, and Jesus sort of casting out over the world. This is actually a very, uh, you know, this is a very artistic way to portray it, and it sort of brings the whole kingdom of the world underneath the outstretched arms of God. I mean, there's some good reality about having that cross up so high that it sort of embraces everybody who's here. But of course, the reality is, is that Roman soldiers didn't work that hard when they needed to kill people. The reality is, is they just sort of boosted them up enough to get the toes off the ground. And so that would mean, as I never thought about before, but of course that would mean that Jesus and Mary are very much face to face. I've never sort of thought about that. I'd never thought about that before, but of course it's true. I'm damaged by, you know, all the artwork I'd seen. You know, you, you can imagine what transpires here. If Jesus is just boosted off the ground, you know, sort of, it's sort of about this far away. It's a remarkable, if you, if you just begin to think about that location, what follows here is really a remarkable exchange. So John 19, um, we got to spin here. John 19, um, this is 26 and 27, 25. The soldiers did this. They gambled for his clothes. But standing by the cross or at the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, so his aunt, Mary, the wife of Clopas. And remember, Arthur Justin, his commentary, makes a very strong case that Clopas is the guy on the road to Emmaus on Easter Sunday. This is actually a very, very strong case for that. This tells you something fascinating about what resurrection does to your body. And Mary Magdalene, now when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near. Now, any of you who have been very close to a loved one who died, when you get this, okay? So you're right there as people suffer and die. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And now you have to just ask yourself, you know, what's happening there? You know, what is that all about? And I started by um, pushing you back in the story a little bit. Whence do we come? This is point one uh, on the third word. One focus of the gospel is John is, is the glory of Jesus. <clears throat> in fact, yesterday I was with a, a couple for premarital counseling. We always read John 2. And uh, John 2 always ends up by saying of Jesus' first miracle, this was a sign done to manifest the glory of Jesus Christ. And you remember, and I've said this to you a hundred times, but I hope you have it tucked away, glory is the biblical word for the holiness of heaven which comes to earth. When the holiness of heaven, so all that paradise is, you know, all that God is, all that his relationship with the saints is, when that holiness, when Eden, when Eden drops down to earth, the biblical word for that is glory. It's for tangible holiness. It's holiness that you can taste, tell, see, touch, feel. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the pillar of cloud by day and the, and the pillar of fire by night over the tabernacle. It's Mary in Jesus. I'm sorry, it's Jesus in Mary's womb. That's the glory of God. It's the presence 
of, of Yahweh in the temple in 1 Kings 8 and 9. And it is, in fact, the presence of Jesus on the cross. John 3, 16. But then keep going. When I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. His greatest glory is found on the cross. Now, that is horribly uncomfortable. And, you know, if you turn to John 19, turn back one page to John 16, 32. Um, John 16, 32. The hour is coming, indeed has come, when you'll be scattered. I mean, Jesus knows that it's a scattering glory. He knows that this will sort of, you know, make you weak in the knees. I mean, he knows that you, <clears throat> this is not what you expect. You know, he knows about the mother of the sons of Zebedee. He knows that she's off balance, which is why he's so gentle with her, even though she's adult in the gospel for today. And Jesus knows that about you, too. He knows it's not particularly easy for you to embrace this when everybody else is home with a Starbucks, you know, reading the New York Times. He, he knows that. You left this morning and all your neighbors were still in bed. It's a scattering kind of glory. But it is nevertheless the glory of God. This is Genesis 3.15 being played out. And you remember, again, I think I've, I've mentioned to you, but I thought it was a brilliant piece from the Passion of the Christ as it sort of opens up. You know, you remember, it's the first time you see Jesus sort of, you know, sweating blood, and then the, that, that, the, the evil to his ear. It's sort of fascinating because it's at the ear just the way a pastor sits at the ear of one who's confessing. He's in the shadows, feeding in a word. The best of all things when a pastor does that in private absolution. The worst of all things is when Satan is in your ear. And you remember Jesus sort of sweats through that. Uh, there's this physical violence that's done by a spiritual temptation. And then you remember how suddenly the, the, the Satan isn't there anymore. But the, the, you remember this? The snake slithers toward him. You remember this? And then you hear the crunching of the bones. He, he stepped on the head of the snake and killed it. Genesis 3.15. You know, you'll bruise his heel, he'll bruise your head. It's a great gospel fulfillment. Whoever did that, they knew exactly what they were doing. It was brilliantly done. And you know then that the promise is going to be fulfilled. You know from the first scene, it's all going to be okay. And that, you see, is what is not obvious unless you're paying attention to the text. So the second Eve, and I just put that to you now, um, try not to you know, you try not to get your um, Virgin Mary firewall up too quickly now, okay? Sort of, sort of, sort of you know, you just drop your Virgin Mary firewall for a second and, and see what, what might happen here to you. Um, uh, you know, as Jesus is second Adam, and that's in the text, that's Romans. Paul speaks of Jesus as a second Adam. The church has often spoken of Mary as a second Eve. Now, be careful, but be wise. What the, what's the church trying to say? Fresh start. You know, creation and recreation. On the sixth day, Good Friday, the first Adam was created. On the sixth, I'm sorry, on the sixth day of creation, the first Adam was created. On the sixth day of the week, Good Friday, the second Adam, with his death, recreates the world. On the seventh day of creation, the Lord rests. On the seventh day of Holy Week, Jesus rests in the tomb. And then on the eighth day, when Jesus reemerges, all things are new. And you remember that then eight 
is, becomes the great symbol of, of salvation. There were eight uh, in, in the ark that were saved. Little baby boys in Israel were brought to circumcision on the eighth day. And uh, when people make baptismal fonts, you often see eight sides on the top. Because that's where you go for your new Eden, your recreation. So just sort of, just sort of watch this. The second Eve is watching Satan, tempter of the first Eve, do his work, do her son. I think I told you, um, you know, when my grandmother died, uh, in addition to, uh, you know, whatever physical ills you have when you're 86 or 87, she had um, horrible hallucinations that Satan was chasing her. That was more difficult to watch uh, than, the physical, than the physical death. You know, it happens. People take all kinds of drugs. You know, you, you sort of come to the end of a life that's sort of been steeped in the imagery of the church. You, you know, one knows not how to explain these things. But the suffering, that sort of suffering is very real. So now you sort of, you sort of amplify that by what happened at the cross, where Satan is actually in his ear. Yeah. And Satan, in the, he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. Come on, give it all up. And then Satan wiggles Peter's tongue. You'll never be crucified, Lord. And then the mockers come. Same temptation. If you're the Christ, come down. It's the same temptation. Find another way. Find a way that fits the world. Find a way that's easier. Find a way that is this world, not other world. Find a way that is anti-Christ. It's the same temptation throughout the scriptures. Be some other kind of Christ. And for Mary to observe that, you know what it is to suffer with people face to face. You can imagine this horrible thing as Mary suffers for Jesus, and Jesus suffers for Mary. Jesus is just, you can hardly sort of, you know, get a grasp on that. So I want to suggest that then at point number two, which is, you know, something is going on that is far greater than the normal death of a mother and son. And I, you know, I suggest to you that there's hardly anything I don't know in my pastoral experience, I don't know of anything worse than the death of a child. It just is, it, it, um, it never adds up. And it is the most difficult of all things, I think, to, to, for a child to die. And, uh, you know, we know that from statistics. The statistics of divorce after a child's death are through the roof. I mean, just, just, it is one of the things that just takes people apart bit by bit. Now, having said that, you know, this is far beyond anything, anything like that, you know. So I give you this, you know, more than sentimentality, more than human love, more than biological connection. You know, of course, Jesus cares for his mother, you know. And I, I just, partly it's good for you to remember this, that Jesus was a Jew and that he had flesh and blood and that it was a real death. We pr probably first should do that. For us, to think of Jesus is to think of Mary. From her, he received his humanity, his Jewish humanity, the color of his eyes, the cut of his nose, that odd way of smiling. She potty trained him. Uh, see, I don't, you know, Luther said the same thing, you remember? The, 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 the joy of Jesus, the joy of Mary on the first Christmas changing Jesus' diaper. We hardly ever think that way. I don't know if you think about Jesus being potty trained, but once in a while you should. She potty trained him, taught him his first words, encouraged his first steps, kissed his scuffed knee. He scuffed his knee, you know. And when he scuffed, he cried. And made it all better. Picked him up in the dark of nightmare nights. 
and told him everything will be all right. Even as she pondered the prophecies about piercing swords and wondered at the meaning of a king from the east who presented as his royal gift myrrh for the birth, or was it the burial? Do you remember when the, when, you know, the, the kings come, uh, gold and frankincense and myrrh? Myrrh is a burial spice. Somebody comes to, your, to see your new baby and brings a coffin. What does that mean? Her, of her lovely child, she accompanied the strange glory to the temple where the prodigious 12-year-old dazzled his elders with his learning. This is three days in the temple. You know, like three days in the belly of Jonah. Like three days in the tomb. She was there for his first miracle at the wedding of Cana, where he turned water into wine. Another thing I didn't know this week, and this is so, so much fun to, to learn things, is, is if you think about it, you know it. But at the wedding, I don't know if you ever really, I thought about this again, I never really thought about this. The last words we have from Mary, the last direct quote in scripture, is at the wedding of Cana, already John chapter 2. Go do what he tells you. Isn't that great? The last words you get from Mary is, go do what he tells you. That is just, that's fascinating on about 10 different levels. Because it is, it understands uh, the, the, the relationship is something that greater than son and mother. And it understands, is, is, and I, I haven't put this in here, but regularly the Catholic Church has understood Mary to be the first disciple. The first one who gets it is Mary as she treasures up everything in her heart. And then the, the last words of the first disciple are, do whatever he tells you. And you can sort of reflect on that in the way of the law. You can ask yourself, do you do whatever he tells you? And you can also reflect on that in the way of the gospel. Do whatever he tells you. Thank God he's telling us what to do. So, and I know that I come near to Mother's Day when I begin to talk about this, there is something of greater consequence than biological mothers. Uh, send your emails to bruzek at you know, stjohnwheaton.org. There is something greater here. Of course, it's the biological connection. And of course, it's the rigors of watching your son die. But even beyond that, there is more. Um, and I give it to you from the formula of Concord. Now, this is what, you know, it's last of the Lutheran confessions. And what, you know, when I come to be pastor and you come to be church, we all sort of raise our hands and say, this is what we live by. But I tell you, I preach this one time a year, and I always get mail or at least stopped at the door. Because people somehow have an aversion to this. But here it is from the big red book that we all say we believe in. On account of his personal union and the communion of nature. That's hotshot theological talk for saying Jesus is full God and full man in one person. Mary, the most blessed virgin, did not conceive a mere ordinary human being, but a human being who is truly the son of the Most High God, as the angel testified. He demonstrated his divine majesty even in his mother's womb, in that he was born of a virgin without violating her virginity. And then the next bit is always what gets people going. There she is truly the mother of God. And that was a huge theological debate. People would say, you know, you can't say such a thing about Jesus. He is from forever and ever. Amen. 
And the answer is, of course he was, according to his divine nature. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. But it is also proper and right and important to speak about Mary as the mother of God. That the one whom she bears on Christmas is actually true God, true man. Theotokos is the Greek. You regularly see that. Mary, the mother of God. We confess that because we actually confess that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity in the flesh. And then people always say, well, you know, and this is, it was fascinating to find this quote because this is often what people say to me at the door, that's going too far. You know? And then Newhouse, saying Theotokos is not a question of going too far. Ah, I missed the extra O there, I'm sorry. Should be two O's, of not going too far. But of how far God went in becoming man. You want to know how far God will go for you? He'll go all the way into the world through the womb of a virgin. That's what he cares about. So try to focus on this, that it's not simply a matter of a mother losing her son. It's all of that. And from the first week of a heavenly father losing his son, it is all of that. But it is also the care of a son for his mother and for you beyond the normal biological bounds. And so I think I, you know, come to my office someday, I've got an icon, uh, a small copy of an icon that the Russians gave me of Mary's death. It's fascinating. The Virgin Mary lies on a bed surrounded by, you know, all sorts of people. But Jesus stands next to her, and in his arms, Jesus holds a baby. And the baby's face is the same as Mary's face. What's the icon trying to tell you? That Jesus is Savior to his mother as well. It's fascinating stuff. That whatever happened on the cross was not just a matter of sort of Jesus caring for his mother, making sure she would be warm and safe and dry and fed. It is for Mary too, Jesus is the resurrection. That even as Mary mothers, uh, mothers, Jesus, Jesus, uh, sons, saves, Mary. Fascinating stuff. And in the same way, uh, you know, Dante spoke of Mary as virgin mother, daughter of thy son. It is a strange relationship they have with each other. That she is mother, and yet he is savior. Mary learned the hard love of letting go, the love that is forged in surrender to a love greater than our own, the love that grows beyond all possessing. Some Christians who have an intense devotion to Mary are embarrassed and offended by these gospel passages that suggest a distancing between Jesus and his mother. Those passages would be things like at Cana where Jesus says to his mother, woman, what have you to do with me? Or uh, when they come to pick up Jesus one day, and they say, your mother's outside. You remember one of the Gospels says, they think he's gone mad. It is your mother and your brothers are outside with a straight jacket. Then Jesus says, these are my mother and brother, sister, and church. They fail to understand that in this distancing love, 
is a deepening of discipleship. And it is as the first of disciples that Mary is to be honored. So even for Mary then, what happens at the cross? She, nose to nose, as he sweats, he bleeds, he, he suffers. Mary is drawn into the darkness of the cross. Even Mary is drawn into that destruction. There's sort of a double dose of both her biological son and her savior. And yet even in that darkness, Jesus is there for her. She is not alone and she's not unloved. You know, always in the darkness, there is the word of God. And so you begin to remember now what Mary was given, the Magnificat, right? He'll undo the proud and raise up the lowly. He'll bring a new kingdom to earth. Or the Benedictus. This child will be for the rising and the falling of Israel. Or the Nunc Dimittis, Simeon's son at the temple. I can die now. I, I've seen it. Same thing you sing when you go to the altar. I mean, re I don't know if you ever get this. What you're saying when you come back from the supper is, uh, if I drop dead right now, it's all okay. I've seen the miracle of the incarnation. That's why we sing the Nunc Dimittis. Because you're having precisely the same experience that Simeon had in the temple. They bring the baby Jesus up, and Simeon says, this is the thing I've been waiting for, and I can die in peace. We bring you up to the altar, and you say, this is the thing I've been waiting for. I can die in peace. Yeah. Never alone, never unloved, and never far from the cross. So I give you, and I, you know, from time to time, and I probably haven't been good enough about this. I probably should mark these things more clearly. I give you things to test. I don't expect you to believe me, but I do expect you to read your scriptures and see if what I say is true. So you test this. There is no connection with the Christ but through the cross. There is no connection with Christ except through the cross. And a Christ, and the small c is intentional. A Christ without a cross is some other Christ than the Father's Son. Just, just test that in your own time. Okay? And then sort of now, if you can step back you know, from being nose to nose with Jesus and try to see the history of what's going on. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the three great Cappadocian fathers. Someday we go to Turkey together. We'll, we go, we'll crawl around in, in Gregory's cave or something. We'll have some fun if it ever opens up again before we all drop dead. Gregory of Nyssa, Basil the Great, Gregory Nazianzus were the three great Turkish. And I know it's hard for you to think of Turks not being Muslims, but for 600 years, well, at least for you know, a good number of years. Turkey was the place. The Turks have the best Roman rule. We really need to go. It is, is the three Cappadocians. I believe they were cousins as well. The three great fathers of the church. Basil, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory Nanzianzus. If one examines this mystery, one will prefer to say not that his death was a consequence of his birth, we sort of say that. That's even, in death. That's even in funeral services sometimes. Born to die, people say as they read the obituary. Born to die the 4th of October, 1957. What Jesus is trying to say, what Gregory is trying to say to you is that it's opposite for Jesus. We would prefer to say, not that his death was a consequence of his birth, 
but that his birth was undertaken so he could die. Not an, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a natural death. It's an intentional death. Now you just have to swing all the way back to the beginning where the Father and the Son work out your salvation in the mystery of the Trinity. And the Father says to the Son, would you please go? And the Father says, and the Son says, gladly, but painfully. Finally, behold your son. You know, behold your mother. Jesus care for her. Not just physically, spiritually. Behold your son. And I would suggest to you that in that statement is a great bit of gospel. That what was scattered, the scattering of the glory of Christ. And, you know, you'll all be scattered and I'll all be left alone. And in a moment, you know, in a couple more words, he will be all alone. When the father damns the son on the cross. It's a horrible, horrible thing when Jesus says uh, why have you forsaken me? There will be a point where Jesus is alone and unloved so that you don't have to be alone and unloved. And that's on the way. That's a couple of words away. But it means nothing less than the Father damns the Son on the cross. But already, uh, a bit of gospel going forward. Behold your Son. The scattering is being put back together. And so your truest family is not by way of blood but water. The church is the one place in the world where water is thicker than blood. Your real family is here. So if, you're, if your old man was a bum, you know, there's a father here that knows how to care for you. And if, if your mother left you, there's other people who could mother you here. And if your siblings are just idiots, lost, abusive, who is your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters? What does Jesus say? It's, it's these folks. And if you all could just act like it, you, know, you wouldn't be able to contain the number of people who would come. This church, this family, is given to the way of Jesus, to the way of Mary, at the foot of the cross. If this is not the second person of the Trinity, the one alone who has the power to forgive our sins, then this Mary-shaped patience in a world constituted by injustice and violence would be the ultimate problem. Paul says the same thing. If, if there's no resurrection, we're of all men most to be pitied. This is the you know, same thing. This is, the church is either the greatest endeavor on the face of the earth, or it is the ultimate idiocy, and there's no in-between. You can't live like you're in-between. You either need to be complete idiot, uh, you know, or complete Christian. Anything in between is lukewarm, spat out. You know. That is why it is so important that we not forget that these words from the cross are the words of the Son of God. The work that the Son does on the cross of the Spirit makes us the remembered, God's memory, so that the world may know that there is an alternative to a world constituted by the fear of death. I wonder if when your friends look at you and when people look at me, whether they say, that's the alternative. That's the other side. That's the reason people join the church. So, all right, we pray and out we go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, 
and the power and the glory. Amen. <clears throat> Let me prompt you toward uh, Professor Rast's seminar next Saturday. Uh, he will also be preaching <clears throat> next weekend and teaching this Bible study. So, uh, you know, come around to hear him. He really is a bright boy uh, and bears a heavy load of uh, teaching and also uh, sort of guidance. He's a, he's a bright young guy. Uh, if you have the time, it would be great to give him that. And then, you know, we'll sort of carry on after next week with, with the fourth word. Thanks.